put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone. Let's pretend we're here together all alone. Tell a man to turn that jukebox way down low. And you can tell the friend they're with you. He'll have to go. Whisper to me, tell me, darling, you love me too. Or is he holding you the way I do? Love is blind, make up your mind, I've got to know. Do I hang up? Or will you tell him You'll have to go You can't say the words I wanna hear When you're with some other man Do you want to answer yes or no? Darling, I will understand to the phone Let's pretend we're here together all alone Tell the man Turn that jukebox way down low And you can tell the friend there with you have to go <laughs> oh thank you that is a song composed by Jim Reeves I was on tour in India a number of years ago and um, the band I was in played that song everywhere we went and uh, um, Every place we announced that we were going to play a Jim Reeves song, the crowd would burst into applause. And it turns out that Jim Reeves is 
wildly more popular in India than he is in the United States. Everybody knew Jim Reeves. I'll tell you another India story. Um, we were playing in, at a folk festival in Jodhpur, it, which is in Rajasthan, and uh, uh, there's this huge hill in the middle of town with this castle on the top of it, and the whole festival took place in this castle, and every surface of every wall was intricately carved in these unbelievable patterns. I mean, it's just such a spectacular aesthetic experience and they'd scheduled the festival to take place on the night when the full moon was rising and our band was playing in this little courtyard um, and it was just the most spectacular performance environment that you can imagine and one of the it was with a group of teachers from Old Town School and one of them was Reggio McLaughlin who some of you might know he teaches jazz tap at Old Town School and uh, um, at one part in the show, he came out on stage and did a solo, and as he was dancing his solo, there was a little Indian girl out in the audience who started dancing along with him, and it, being the showman that Reggio is, he immediately jumped off stage and dragged her up on stage, and they did a little duet, and of course, that totally brought the house down, and after the show was over, everybody uh, crowded around this whole, this girl and her family all wanted to get their pictures taken with Reggio. Um, and we got talking to them and they said, well, where are you from? And we said, well, we're from Chicago. And they said, oh, well, um, we lived in Chicago for a while. Um, it turns out that the, the dad in this family worked for Motorola and was, was stationed here in Chicago for four or five years. And, and uh, we said, well, we're all at Old Town School of Folk Music. And they said, oh, well, all of our kids were wiggle worms. <laughs> so here we were halfway around the world running into a bunch of wiggle worms grads. So I, I selected these two songs to start off with this evening because I learned them from um, Ry Cooter recordings many years ago and uh, we just learned that Ry Cooter is going to be the performer at this year's Blue Jean Gala at Old Town School so I'm um, excited about having Ry Cooter come and play. story about Billy the Kid Sing you the record of deeds that he did Way down in New Mexico a long time ago When a man's only friend was his old 44 Now when Billy the Kid was just a very young lad in old Silver City, he went to the bad 
way out west with a knife in his hand at the age of 12 years he killed his first man sweet mexican maidens play guitar and sing songs about billy the boy bandit king before his short life had met his sad end He had a notch on his pistol for 21 men said to his men I'm not satisfied there's 21 men that I put bullets through and Sheriff Pat Garrett's gonna make 22 it was on a dark night Billy the Kid met his fate the big moon was rising the hour was late Shot down by Pat Garrett, Silver City's best friend That poor outlaw's life had made it sad and good Thank you. Well, Bob, one of... One of the things I usually ask people is kind of where they come from and how they found their way to this type of music. I could like um, to answer that in any order you want. All right. Um, well, I was born in Wiltshire, England, and my family moved to Ypsilanti, Michigan when I was two years old. And um, my father was, uh, he made his living as a psychiatrist, but uh, had he not been a psychiatrist, I think he would have been a professional musician. He was uh, very talented, and uh, his big musical passion was Baroque keyboard music. Um, he was really into the harpsichord. In fact, through most of my childhood, he would plan our family vacations to pass by um, somewhere where a harpsichord maker lived and often we would come home with one sticking out of the back of the station wagon. Um, anyways, in uh, the early 60s when the folk revival was just starting to get hot, um, my dad being a, a, uh, an uh, old lefty felt that it was um, politically expedient for him to take an interest in folk music and uh, so he threw himself into it sort of the way he did uh, all sorts of things I mean he would go on a binge where he would learn Icelandic or something like that and he would just do nothing but Icelandic for six months anyways he got he decided he was gonna uh, take an interest in folk music so he subscribed to sing out and he bought a bunch of LPs from folkways uh, and he got one of those Pete Seeger long neck banjos and uh, then promptly forgot all about that stuff and went back to playing Scarlatti and Bach. And, um, 
So all this stuff was in our house, and I discovered it, and uh, it did something to me that um, nothing else did. Um, I was just a normal suburban teenager listening to Motown and the Beatles, um, but listening to Roscoe Holcomb singing about moonshiners um, was something that was like it was from another planet, and I didn't have any context to put it in, but it was something about it that I just found very compelling. So I sort of made it my business to start finding out about this stuff called folk music, and uh, um, that just kept on expanding. Um, I think it's probably because I've got a really low boredom threshold that I constantly am getting interested in new kinds of music, so I've gone through phases where I was, you know, a big Irish music kick for a while, and Cajun music, and Tex-Mex music, and early jazz, and uh, uh, I really got into playing the ukulele for a while and took some lessons from Roy Smeck, who was still alive at the time. Um, a rather extraordinary experience that was. Um, anyways, that's a little bit of my musical history. Well, why, why Roscoe Holcomb and not Scarlatti and Bach? Well, I, I like Scarlatti and Bach a lot, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's all sort of part of my musical DNA. But I can sing you all the songs on that Roscoe Holcomb record. My dad certainly couldn't. Mm-hmm. Was, was it that was kind of your own, your own territory to, no, to go in rather no, than I, something I, that he... He, he, yeah. you know, he didn't disclaim it or anything. He just ignored it. Uh-huh. And what, were there any? He didn't music- show much interest in the Rolling Stones either. <laughs> <laughs> were Were there musicians coming through town? That uh, any sort of significant folk musicians that you saw? Yeah. Um, when I was still in high school, I'd um, take a bus into downtown Detroit, and uh, there was a coffee house there uh, in the old Mariner's Church, and I was there a lot. Um, the, the only notable, I think most of the people who played there were sort of Detroit and maybe some other Midwest talent that never got to be famous. But Michael Cooney came in one time and um, uh, he greatly impressed all of us. I subsequently got to be good friends with Michael, but um, that came many years later. And so you're, you're in high school. Are you, are you playing, what instruments are you playing at that point? Um, mostly in high school, I was playing guitar. Um, subsequently, I um, took up the fiddle and mandolin, and fiddle really defeated me. I worked hard at it for three or four years uh, and just never could loosen my right arm enough. To, you, know, you watch a really great fiddle player, and their right hand will just dance around in the air like a uh, hummingbird. It's just such a beautiful thing to watch, and I never ever got to the point where I could do that so I gave up on fiddle but I still play mandolin some although my mandolin is another one of these wooden instruments that Chicago's um, climate has worked such havoc on so right now it's unplayable but so I haven't played it for a year or two um, but I play mandolin and then um, shortly after uh, after I got out of college and I, I spent a couple of years on tour and then moved to Maine and um, one day I heard uh, a musician 
uh, it was at Christmas time and the snow was falling and he was outside of the only department store in Brunswick, Maine, playing Christmas carols on the button accordion. And I thought it was such a beautiful sound that I had to learn how to do that. So I acquired my first button accordion. That would have been about 75 or 76, somewhere in there. Um, and, um, well, there's multiple versions of the button accordion family, and I've played around on pretty much all of them. Um, Maybe you could show us a little bit about how the accordion you have here works. and Yeah, sure. And then play, play a song on it, but what, what kind of, because you're right, there are different types of accordions, of course. So, so uh, this is what's called a button accordion or a diatonic accordion. Um, the thing that separates accordions from concertinas is accordions have all the melody notes over in the right hand, and in the left hand they've got a fundamental note and a triad, so you get that the um and the pa is all in the left hand, um, and the melody's over on the right hand. Um, now, a diatonic accordion like this one, each button plays two different notes. One when you're closing the bellows, and another one when you're opening the bellows. It's really sort of like a manual version of a harmonica. Um, and uh, so a, a, the most basic uh, button accordion would be just a single row of buttons and uh, it would uh, only play in a single key. So like Cajun musicians like a single row button accordion. Je passais d'apprendre d'apport, je criais à la belle, y'a personne qui m'a pas répondu, oh y'a ma cour fait mal. Anyways, um, that's sort of the most basic. Um, a lot of the English players will add a second row, um, which allows them to play in two keys, or they can cross back and forth from the rows. And so they'll use that for a lot of Morris dance tunes, uh, traditional English um, dance tunes of all sorts, but like, like Irish also play button boxes that play a different note on the push and the pull, but theirs are all tuned in B and C, which uh, there's no black key in between B and C on the piano, so those are a half step apart, which allows them to play fully chromatically. 
Um, the only problem is that there aren't any Irish tunes that are in B or C. And, and so it's a kind of a diabolical fingering to be able to play in D and G and A where all those Irish tunes are, um, which I think says something really profound about the Irish character that you know, the, 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 the instrument that they adopt is one that you really have to sort of somehow it's not so much turning your fingers into pretzel, it's turning your brain into a pretzel to be able to remember what those different configurations are. Um, but they managed to do that. Um, then there's a three-row box like this. This one happens to play in G, C, and F, but you can get them in um, F, B flat, and E flat, or A, D, and G. Um, they're always a fourth away from each other. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of music that ends up getting played on here. I, I, that first tune um, was the way Flaco Jimenez um, uh, played that, uh, that tune that Rykuder sang. Um, let's see, what's another good thing to play for you on here? Well, we were talking uh, before this show started about uh, Hank Williams, so I might as well play you a Hank Williams song. Um, sleep but sleep don't come the whole night through your cheating heart gonna tell on you when tears fall down like falling rain you toss around and call my name You walk the floor The way I do Your cheating heart Is gonna tell on you Cry one day and crave the love you threw away. The time will come when you be blue. 
You're cheating heart is gonna tell on you when tears fall down like falling rain. You toss around and call my name. You walk the floor. The way I do Your cheating heart Is gonna tell on you Your cheating heart Is gonna tell on you That's the accordion tutorial for this evening. <laughs> well, since you played that and then you played the, the Jim Reed song, kind of a Cajun style, could, maybe you could tell me, I've always wondered, why, what is it that makes those kind of country songs fit so well into Cajun music? I mean, I don't think of those original country singers weren't playing with accordions, but somehow it, it fit particularly well. I think it's because um, whether you're in Nashville or... Louisiana, there's only three chords that they know. <laughs> but there, there's something about those, those Cajun tunes. So I mean, the guys, that, that little bit of uh, uh, Je Passe that I played uh, is a D.L. Menard song. And D.L. Menard is known as the Cajun Hank Williams. He, he passed away maybe a decade ago now. It's been a, a few years since D.L. was with us. Um, but... If you go out to western Louisiana in any of the roadhouses out there, there'll be a band up on stage with fiddles and accordions, and they'll all be wearing cowboy hats, and they they somehow embody that ethos in a really deep way. Of course, if you go down into San Antonio, they're all wearing cowboy hats and playing Mexican music, and there's somehow a, a soul connection there somewhere. <laughs> Well, I wanted to ask you about when you were traveling around and you said you were going, we talked a little bit earlier about you were doing basically school assemblies and stuff like that. Is yes, that right? I did. How, uh, did. how did you get started with that and what was, what was that like? How long did you <laughs> tell us a little bit about that? Um, so I basically, um, this is really the difference between um, growing up when I grew up in the 60s and growing up today, um, I was able to put myself through college by playing coffee houses and crummy bar gigs. Uh, and about the best paying gig that I ever got was maybe 25 or $30 in an evening. Um, but the college I went to, the tuition was $111 a semester. So um, I was able to do that. I don't think... I know that my children weren't able to do that. <laughs> um, in any case, after I got out of college, I, uh, there was a uh, agency here in Chicago called School Assembly Services that booked school assemblies. And there was a guy that came and saw me play in a bar one night and said, oh, I think you'd really be good at doing this. And um, he signed me on and for what I thought was really a ridiculously grandiose amount of money, I think it was $500 a week or something like that, um, which seemed to, to, by my standards to be absolutely huge. But of course, uh, I had to take all of my um, 
living out there on the road out of what I was making too. So it was, you know, two years of playing 15 school assemblies a week and staying in Motel 6s most of the time. Who, what sort of people are doing that? Was, was it a Motley crew or not? Um, well, the other artists that were on this agency, they were some really bizarre things. Um, there was a woman named Naomi Gibbs who did sand paintings. And there was another guy that was on the same roster with us whose name was Harry Bow Wow Todd and his amazing trained dogs. <laughs> but subsequent to that, I uh, ended up being in a, a number of bands that um, I was really fortunate to uh, get to do a lot of traveling, um, playing music. And one of the great things about traveling as a musician is that everywhere you go, you meet other musicians and uh, uh, they're not only delightful people to know, but they know all the good cheap places to eat as well. And and they, you know, if, if you're new in Rome, um, it's great to have some Roman musicians to show you the town. Uh, and so I was really lucky in uh, being able to, to be treated all over the world to um, hospitality from other musicians. And it, you end up getting these wonderful, strange gigs as a result of it. Um, one of the places that I played was at the first all-Italian bluegrass festival, which took place in this um, a farm in Varese, up in the mountains. Um, and the name of this farm was the Ponderosa. <laughs> and there was about 20 bands from all over Italy, all playing bluegrass, and um, a few of them, they sounded so good, you would swear that they were born in some holler in North Carolina. And it was only afterwards when you'd be playing tunes with them in the parking lot uh, that you'd realize that they'd just sort of picked it up phonetically off the record and they'd gotten the dialect absolutely perfect. But then when you'd play the song with them, they would finish and they'd turn to us Americans and say, oh, what does this mean, this uh, sopping up the gravy? <laughs> but ha ha the other half of the bands sounded like Italians trying to play bluegrass, so there was lots of... Uh, I, I hear that lonesome weasel blow. <laughs> well, I mean, what, what, do you have a certain amount of, I guess, authenticity as an American? I mean, you're not from a holler or something like <laughs> yeah, that. No, so what is just, it like to represent just, America to Just, just being the Americans at this festival made us the authorities. Um, <laughs> it, 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 we weren't really playing bluegrass. It was, we were sort of a Western swing band. We were doing a bunch of Bob Wills and um, Milton Brown, those kinds of songs. Um, but um, it, the fact that we were Americans um, it made us authorities. <laughs> well, another time we played on a radio show, uh, and there was th this host who had, he played nothing but American music, um, but his English was really bad, and so while he was, we were there, he was pulling records out of his collection to put on, and he put on this one record by a guy named Harmonica Frank, uh, and you, some of you may have heard yeah. this song. It's called the Peckerwood song. Mm -hmm. And the lyrics to this song goes, pecked real hard, it's a hard pecker. Picked real long, it's a hard, it's, it's a long pecker. And he had absolutely no idea what 
the connotations were of the song that he was playing. He, he just thought, well, this is some American folk music we're going to put on now, folks. And um, I don't know how many of his listeners on Radio Sicilia knew what was going on, but we all got a charge out of it. Well, what, what do you think is the appeal of American music? I mean, your dad is, a, is an Englishman, basically, was, was into it. What is it that stands um, out? The whole world is... Um, absolutely fascinated by american music everybody in the in the world wants to hear american music why because it's such fantastic music <laughs> no we do we've we've got this amazing musical tradition here which pulls you know you can't think about american music without thinking about african-american music it is so much a part of all of our musical traditions, um, but it's not just African American music. It's it's the synthesis of African American music and Latino music and all the European musics and various pop music strains uh, and Asian music. It's everything that comes together in our musical traditions, and it makes some really spectacular music. Most of the world is living in a relatively contained musical bubble. You know, in uh, my mother's family is from Croatia, and I traveled there some. And in Croatia, you're either listening to Croatian music or you're listening to American music. And all the young people just wanted to listen to American music because they'd heard enough Croatian music as far as they were concerned. I wanted to hear Croatian music, but um, the young people there, they wanted to hear Hank Williams or Hank Williams. <laughs> so... Um did you decide you were tired of the road at some point, or how did you transition from well, the traveling? Well, um, I was the guy in the band that set up the tours and you know called up the bar owners to get the gigs. Any working band has got to have somebody like me doing it. And uh, everywhere we traveled, we met a lot of other musicians, and I started setting up tours in the States for them um, and sort of gradually found myself... Um, getting more into the administrative side of things. And then there was one night, all this time I was living in the state of Maine, um, and so there's there one night where our band had a gig, I think it was in some crummy bar in Vermont, and it took about five hours to drive home in the middle of the winter, and the heat had gone off in our band van, and by the time I got home, I was mostly ice, and uh, I was living in this little cabin that I'd built in the woods that only had a wood stove for heat, and since I'd been gone for 24 hours or so, it was 34 degrees in my house, and I had to feed the stove and stay up for another 45 minutes to get it burning enough that I could damp it down and even go to sleep, and I just decided that it probably wasn't really worth my while for the $25 that I'd earned. Um, so... Um, I started taking the administrative side of the entertainment industry a little bit more seriously, and I got a job first as the director of a, of a large multi-stage music festival, and then of a performing arts center, and um, in my capacity at the performing arts center, I was doing a lot of work with local refugee and immigrant communities. Portland, Maine is a really interesting town. It's um, it's in the middle of the whitest state in the nation, but it's been a very active refugee resettlement destination for 50 years now, since the Vietnam War. Uh, so there was large communities of Cam Cambodians and Bosnians and Kosovars and Congolese and Sudanese and Somalis, uh, and Afghans from back when Russia was having their war with Afghanistan. Um, 
and because I was interested in musical traditions, I sought all these people out and started finding out about what they were doing and what they were interested in. And they would say, well, you know, there's this really great Afghan singer who is going to be in New York City in uh, October. Can we get him to come to Portland? And I'd say, well, I don't know, but I can try. And um, it ended up sort of becoming a livelihood um, doing fairly intensive and long-term community cultural work with a lot of different immigrant and refugee communities, um, at which subsequently I wrote a book about it, um, which immediately shot to number 376,495 <laughs> on the Amazon bestseller list. Um, the University of Illinois Press published it, and I think they're, they're this was in 2005, and, and I think they did a print run of 2000, and they have not run out of their print run yet. So um, it hasn't exactly uh, been flying off the shelves. Um, but there's something about um, being an author that's substantially different from being a musician. When you are performing a song, you get to the end of it, and the audience either claps or they don't. But one way or another, you know how they felt about it. When you write a book and you send it off into the world, nothing happens. In some cases, for years. But I've had these instances where I get into an elevator at some conference, and somebody sees my name tag and says, Oh my God, you're the guy who wrote Cultural Democracy. And... I'll admit that, in fact, I am, and they'll say, oh, that book changed my life. Um, so what the hell, you know? Uh, it's, it's, it's just um, delayed gratification. Of on, the, on that note, I'll have you play another song. All right, and more music. We'll, we'll catch back up with where things were at that point after that. But Okay. Does anybody have a stylistic genre preference, or you just want to turn me loose? sort of uh, music that you could do? Sure. Or something else. <laughs> it, it didn't, you didn't sound as enthusiastic as I hoped. Oh, no, there's lots of New England music. Um, an awful lot of it is slow and lugubrious, and um, I don't want to bore you all we with that, but that. here's a, a pretty one. Come on, you fishermen. Listen to me, I'll sing you a song about the fish in the sea. Yea, oh little fish, don't cry, don't cry. Yea, oh little fish, you'll be a whale by and by. You go to fish school and you read from a book. How not to get caught on the fisherman's hook Yea, oh little fish, don't cry, don't cry Yea, oh little fish, be a whale by and by That's the chorus, incidentally, if you want to sing Watch out, little fish, cause we're out after you but you can escape away deep in the blue Yea, oh little fish, don't cry, don't cry Yea, oh little fish, you'll be a whale by and by 
You just swim around the fisherman's bait And you won't end up on the fisherman's plate Yeah-ho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry Yeah-ho, little fish, you'll be a whale by and by Yeah-ho, little fish, don't cry, don't cry Yeah-ho, little fish, you'll be a whale by and by I think we might have at some point I know you told me you got your your master's in ethnomusicology is that in Maine or was that before no, that that, or? that was um, well I was living in Maine um, but I uh, got my degree from Tufts University <laughs> down in Boston um, I went to Tufts because they thought that maybe I would be a good advertisement for their ethnomusicology program since I was already out there in the world organizing concerts and things um, and so they gave me a free ride. Uh, but Tufts also had a big advantage of, um, Tufts has automatic cross-registration with New England Conservatory, BU, and Brandeis. And uh, um, I was working and I had two kids and I couldn't afford to go be a full-time student. And so I figured that I would do it one day a week. I would give one day a week to being a graduate student. And so I would flip through the catalogs of all four of those schools and I'd find some class that only met on Tuesdays. And uh, that would be what I would register for. And Tufts was very nice about it. They said, here, you can take as long as you want to do this. So I think most people finish their degree in about a year, but it took me about three. Um, but I did. <laughs> Do you have a song set up? I'll let you. I, yeah. I see you've got. Well, so, so it's worth in New England. Um, I thought I would sing a song for you by Mark Graham, who is a, a great harmonica player and singer and songwriter who lived in Boston all the time, or most of the time that I was living in Maine. Uh, so we were sort of um, chasing each other around the same musical circles. Um, but I think for the last. 15 or 20 years he's been out in Seattle or somewhere out there. So this is a song that he wrote. I sit in contemplation of the human situation I often have a certain sense of pride Because our accomplishments are many and mighty The evidence cannot be denied But my reverie is shaken Cause my thoughts are often taken To a tragedy that happened long ago when there walked through the land Creatures awesome and grand The fabulous dinosaur They were creatures in a matter quite reptilian In their unique and stylish way And their numbers could be reckoned in the millions But there are zero of these heroes in the world today there was dinosauric passion, music, art, and fashion And I know they'd be distressed and mortified That when they're mentioned today, it is only to say Their brains were small and they died
a passing asteroid that Mother Earth could not avoid became the agent of their premature demise. Well, I understand that these things can happen. Who are we to criticize? When we'd pay most any price to have the ultimate device to ensure the perfect global suicide. I would venture instead that the humanoid head is where the tinier brain resides. And when we're gone, our works begin to crumble until nothing can be found. In a million years, some other guy will stumble upon our fossils and that cockroach will begin to expound. In some scientific study to his cockroach science buddies, how the evidence could never be denied. They were big, dumb, and slow. They couldn't go with the flow. Their brains were small and they died. Their brains were small and they died. I don't know how to follow that, but <laughs> accurate. Um, well, we could move into funny songs. We could do, uh, <laughs> yo, well. Should we, we do another funny song? Sure. <laughs> All right. You sound, you sound ready. Oh, okay. All right. I, I'll, I, I, we can go to sad songs, too, if you want. We'll stay with funny. <laughs> All right. Whenever there's a party, I always get invited. And though the greeting's hearty, I never get excited. Because they always say to me, oh, won't you sing and play? But the minute that I start to sing, they think of things to say. They laugh and talk and shout until they drown me out. I love to sing for people when they talk, talk, talk. Oh, how I'd love to take them for a walk, walk, walk. I'd take them to the river and stab them in the liver and throw them in and listen to them squawk, squawk, squawk. I wonder why they never bust a lung, lung, lung. I'd like to stop their necks up with a bung, bung, bung. The louder that I play, the more they have to say. Oh, I love to sing for people when they talk. I love to sing for people when they shout, shout, shout. No matter how I try, they drown me out, out, out. For hours they sit and guzzle, to me they are a puzzle. They ought to have a muzzle on their snout, snout, snout. If they could read my mind, they'd get a big surprise. To see the awful vengeance that I visualize. To jail I would be sent for criminal intent. Oh, I love to sing for people when they talk. Is that, is that your song? Is that someone else's song? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a song from? written by Carson Robinson, uh-huh. the New York City cowboy. <laughs> um, one thing I did want to talk about, I know it's not something you could, could really play for us now, but you were telling me you did a lot of research of uh, Cambodian and Turkish music. Just kind of talk a little bit of how you got into that. And Well, uh, when I was in graduate school, um, Ethnomusicology students are required to pick some specialized area of study, um, and there was this 
um, Armenian Ud player that lived not far from me in Maine and who I'd always uh, enormously admired. And I asked him if he would give me Ud lessons um, as part of my graduate studies. And um, it, he was just a magnificent, magnificent master musician and really sort of became a, a mentor to me. And I ended up playing in his band for about 15 years. Um, and he passed away uh, eight or 10 years ago now. But um, I still have the utmost admiration for him. And so what he was teaching me was about the Turkish makam system um, of um, musical theory, which is uh, a, a fairly substantial departure. Here in the West, we have short melodies. You know, you think about Beethoven's fifth. Dun, 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 dun. It's only got four notes, and three of them are the same. <laughs> Um, and that's pretty much the whole first movement. It just repeats that in various inversions, but we build this gigantic scaffolding of harmony that, that goes on top of that, and that's sort of the glory of Western music. Most Asian music is all about melody. In Turkish music, there is no harmony. It's only melody, um, and... So they would never have a melodic phrase that was four notes long. They might have a melodic phrase that would go for many minutes without repeating. Um, and they've got a set of um, pretty complicated rules to govern how melodies work and intersect with each other and what notes you play in specific melodies or whether you're playing fast or slow, or whether you want uh, to express um, grief or joy. Uh, there's all sorts of rules around these makams, and each makam uh, has a distinct set around them. To hear a really well-educated um, Turkish or Arabic music musician playing uh, in the makam theory, you've got to be pretty well educated in it yourself to be able to pick up on the nuance of what they're doing. My teacher would play these modulating um, taksims, solos, where he would go from one makam to the next, and if he hadn't told me, you know, okay, I'm going from Hijaz to Rast to Azem Asharan, um, my ear wasn't good enough that I could pick up the distinctions because sometimes it would be, you know, this note is a quarter tone flat in one makam from what it is in another. Or when you're playing a descending scale, you change the, the notes slightly. Um, but he was a total master of it. And uh, so I just stood in awe of, of him and still do. Um, but I also was particularly interested in Cambodian music because there was a lot of Cambodians um, in in Portland uh, and in connection with my work um, every year we would bring some master Cambodian dancers and musicians um, to Portland to work with the kids in the Cambodian community uh, to teach them part of their heritage there wasn't any professional level dance or music uh, in the Cambodian community there so we would have to bring these people in um, and in the course of doing that over many years, I learned a great deal about um, Cambodian classical music and dance. We used to, every year, we would have our masters come in for oh, three or four weeks, 
um, just leading up to Cambodian New Year, which is in the middle of April, and we would always have a big Cambodian New Year uh, festival, and all the kids would perform, and the masters would perform as well. And the, the first time we, we did one of these, it was total bedlam in the hall. There was kids running up and down the aisles, and people were eating and cracking jokes, and um, it, it, if any of you have ever seen any Cambodian classical dance, it is extremely austere, and it's this beautiful, subtle, slow-moving, nuanced performance, um, and it seemed as though nobody in the room was paying the slightest attention to it. And as I was taking the artists back to the hotel after the gig, um, I was just apologizing to them as profusely as I could. I was saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Look, we go to all the trouble of bringing you here, and, and look how rudely our audience treats you. And they said, well, that just shows how little you know about Cambodians. <laughs> because if you were at the palace in Phnom Penh, it would be exactly the same way. And subsequently, I was at the palace in Phnom Penh, and indeed, there's just none of the preciousness around performance in Cambodian culture that we have here. Um, you would all be an, considered to be a, a bizarrely attentive audience by Cambodian standards. Uh, if you were in Cambodia, you really should be playing a game of dice or something over here, and maybe a, a cockfight happening over here. Or, or it, it, it's, a, it's a completely different scene. And, you know, and then an elephant comes walking by, so it's, it's different. <laughs> I guess, you know, you mentioned as American music as being a mix of African-American music and European music, Latin American music. Does that sort of mix still happen? I mean, do you feel like these Cambodians or, you know, Turks that are coming to America, do these sort of exchanges still happen in this way they would have, say, 100 years ago? Yes, I think yeah. that, yeah, the, our, our musical traditions are alive and well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a, a fierce believer of and proponent in real traditional music, um, and I know and revere a lot of musicians who are going to play it the same way they learned it from their grandfather because they feel in their hearts that they owe it to that tradition to, to sustain it and uh, to maintain it in its most pure form. But I also know lots of people who play traditional music who have combined it with all sorts of electronica and um, mix it up with jazz and blues and rock and roll and all sorts of things. And I admire them equally because no tradition can survive if it just stays conservative and uh, it's got to have room to expand its boundaries and, and flow into whatever is living next door to it. And that's just the folk process. That's, that's the recombinant DNA of our musical universe. And um, I'm glad that the, the hardcore tread guys are there and I'm glad that the Bella Flex of the world are there too. We'll talk more about how you wound up being director of the Old Town School, but as a director, would you say your vision is more towards the traditional or more towards that, that fusion of different musics? Or how do, you, how do you balance that and try to keep everybody happy? Well, Old Town School, um, 60 years ago when it started out, it probably was a homogenous enough community that 
there was really one old town school community and everybody knew each other and they were all passionate about the same songs. But old town school has grown so big that, um, you know, there's a flamenco crowd that probably doesn't make a whole lot of cultural common cause with the bluegrass crowd, which is probably not making a whole lot of cultural common cause with the teen open mic. Um, but they're all a part of our larger musical universe, and um, I like the fact that we're all coexisting here together. I'll have you play another song, and we'll talk some more. Okay, another you can song. Take the instrument. Kisses, a fine romance, my friend. This is. We two should be like a couple of hot tomatoes. But you're as cold as yesterday's mashed potatoes. A fine romance with no quarrels, with no insults and all morals you're more difficult to land than the Ile de France I haven't got a chance this is a fine romance A fine romance with no pinches You're colder than the seals in the Arctic Ocean At least they flap their fins to display emotion A fine romance, my good woman My fine died in the wool Woman, oh, I might as well play bridge with my old maid aunt. I haven't got a chance. This is a fine romance. Thank you. All right, I'll, I'll sing a song for you um, about religion. I was brought up in the bosom of the Unitarian Church, which 
as many of you probably know, isn't really a religion. It's a liberal social club. <laughs> There's a, a joke about Unitarians that it, um, uh, in the Unitarian Church, um, Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Suggestions. <laughs> Um, the the church that I went to um, the behind the pulpit there was symbols of all the other religions in the world there was um, Islamic crescents and orthodox crosses and yin yang symbols and the the symbol of the Unitarian Church in case any of you uh, know it's it's this sort of stylized torch in a circle. Um, and one of my earlier theological lessons uh, came when my sister and I were about maybe eight or ten years old and were got into an argument um, with, about God with uh, Chucky Keller, our next door neighbor who is from a Catholic family. And his trump card that he played was he said, well, that the symbol of the Catholic Church is the Holy Cross. And my sister said, oh yeah? Well, the symbol of the Unitarian Church is a martini glass with a flame coming out of it. quite stiff Hitch up your robes and your raiments Jehovah come down to the foot of your cliff and taste the stream that is always beneath you drink from our wonderful font Cause paradise is right here on this world, Jehovah. What more could we possibly want? Come down, come down from your mountain, Jehovah. Come down and rest at your ease. Walk through our woods and our valleys, Jehovah, sail upon glistening seas, and teach to the children the things you have learned, and listen to what they have to say. They say paradise is right here on this world, Jehovah, not tomorrow. But right now, today And devil, come up from your fiery furnace Come up and show us your face There's nothing you can teach us Of evil or hatred We don't have right here in this place there's nothing so wicked as man and his ego. 
nothing so lost or insane And bring your demons up too So we know it's not you But us who must carry the blame Oh, it's us who must live with the shame Come down, come down from your mountain, Jehovah Come down and talk with us here Heaven and hell and the life ever after It's such a beguiling idea But this life here holds so much more, Jehovah more than you'll ever know And when we find that it's time to leave it behind We'll just close our eyes and let go If we've all done our best, we'll be ready for rest We'll just close our eyes and let go Beautiful. Thank you. Who wrote that one? That was written by um, a fiddle player and singer and guitar player too um, from the south of England. Um, Chris Wood is his name. Um, he gets far less notoriety than he should because he's uh, one of the great masters of um, English folk song. Um, he's sort of like Mark Graham, he's one of these guys who's an incredible player, um, but also happens to write brilliant songs. I, wa I wanted to talk to you about how you made your way to Chicago, how you ended up at the Old Town School. Well, um, I had been living and working in Maine for about 30 years, um, and finally, I hit my boredom threshold and decided that I needed um, a different environment and different, different cast of characters. The state of Maine is a lovely place uh, and it's a really rich place in a lot of ways, but it's also a really small pond. Um, I tell all my friends back in Maine that they just don't really understand. There's uh, more Mexicans in the city of Chicago than there are people in the whole state of Maine. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a different scene. Anyways, I, I took a job for uh, a little while managing a performing arts center in Roanoke, Virginia, up in the Blue Ridge. Um, my house was just a stone's throw off the Blue Ridge Parkway. 
Uh, and I'd only been in that job for about a year and a half when um, a headhunter called me up and told me this job was available in Chicago and was I interested in applying. And uh, for somebody that's got the musical interests that I've got, um, there's no better place to be in the universe than at Old Town School of Folk Music. So um, I sent him my resume and got lucky. <laughs> I remember the the day that I came for to be interviewed, it was a really lousy day in February. It was like <laughs> sleeting, you know, and freezing rain. And um, I got here and there was a sign pasted to the door that said claw hammer banjo two class moved to room b4 and i came in and there was chris walls or mark dvorak or somebody sitting on one of the pews playing a bunch of songs and uh, i just kind of looked around and said hmm this is what i've been practicing for <laughs> so um i've been extraordinarily fortunate to have been here uh, for about 10 years now well, what, what was it like to kind of come in at, to head, you know, in a certain way, of course, to head a community that oh, listen, had been it, around it, for a very it, long time? And, it, it, you know, it, how did you integrate your, yourself I don't know it? if I've ever integrated myself. <laughs> it, it, took, it took, you know, there's nothing like Old Town School in, in the world. Um, when I was interviewing, one of the board members who was on the search committee said, well... I'm looking at your resume, and the largest organization that, that you've directed in the past had 12 employees, and Old Town School's got 350. How do you think you're going to be able to make that leap? And I said, I don't have any idea how I'm going to be able to make that leap, but if you want somebody that knows American folk music in any kind of deep way, you're not going to find anybody who has directed an organization with 350 employees because there isn't one out there. <laughs> and, uh, and they took a chance on me. <laughs> what, what is your, I mean, what's your, what's your average week like? What do you, what do you wind up doing? What are you um, focusing I, I, on? So I spend um, about equal amounts of my time doing fundraising, budget management, personnel management, um, sort of high-level strategic planning for what's coming next at the school. And then the last 20% is um, the sort of ceremonial side of being the director. Uh, it's going and giving talks at Rotary Clubs and going to conferences and being asked to be on panels and, and things like that. So um, that also takes up a fair amount of my time. I don't get to spend nearly as much time playing music as I would like or as I would have assumed would be the case when I took this job, but... Um, that's just the nature of it. Do you, do you miss it? you ever think to yourself, the hell with it, I should go join a band and go back on the road? Um, <laughs> yeah, I do think that from time to time, but um, I'm pretty sure my wife uh, and children would object to um, taking a uh, pay cut that would take me down to the minuscule level of the income that I was making when I was actually living as a musician. <laughs> um, what, do you, what do you find are some of the biggest challenges you face as a director? 
I've always said that I think the biggest challenge of being director at Old Town School is somehow managing to bring the needs of a $14 million business um, together with the face-to-face encounter with art that is so fundamental to Old Town School. And, um, you know, we've got 350 anarchists on our staff. And... (laughs) And they have got to be um, meshed with the institutional demands of keeping the place running. And that is, a, it's a target that never holds still. It's, 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 it's constantly moving around. Um, and um, it's a challenge. And I think it'll, it, I hope it'll always be a challenge at Old Town School and that um, we won't ever sort of... Um, you know, become another conservatory. It's just not in our bones. Is there, I guess, is there is there a line that you set as far as what is part of the Old Town School folk community? Is there something, you know, that you are saying, well, this this is part of our community and this isn't? Have you ever well, thought right. about so what, what the is, boundaries are? Um, it, I'm often asked, what is it that accounts for Old Town School's remarkable success? And uh, what I believe is responsible for it is that everybody who teaches at Old Town School and all of the administrative staff, I think you could ask almost anybody and they would say something similar to, it is the fact that we are a music school, but just as important as the music is nurturing a sense of community and the community and the music go hand in hand with each other and are inseparable and I think that's why people come to Old Town School and I think that's why people come back to Old Town School because they find a community here that embraces them whether they're playing their first note or are virtuoso they're going to find a community of people that are uh, welcoming and accepting and um, it, loving. Mm-hmm. Well, how about we do another another song? All right, another song. <laughs> um, this is a, a song about George Fox, who was a Quaker radical uh, back in the days of Oliver Cromwell, and went on. Uh, he, he became one of the the founders of the Society of Friends, um, and this is a song about him. light that was shining when the whole world began there's a light that is shining in the heart of man there's a light that is shining on the muslim and the jew there's a light that is shining on me and you walk in the light wherever you may be walk in the light wherever you may be with your old leather breeches and your shaggy shaggy locks you are walking in the glory of the light george fox oh 
old leather breeches and shaggy, shaggy locks. Old leather breeches and shaggy, shaggy locks. With your old leather breeches and your shaggy, shaggy locks, you are walking in the glory of the light, George Fox. That's the chorus. There's a book, there's a pulpit, there's a key, they would bind them all together, but they can't steady for the book. It will perish and the steeple, it will fall, but the light will be shining at the end of it all. Walk in light, wherever you may be, walk in light, wherever you may be, with your old leather breeches and your shaggy, shaggy locks, you are walking in the glory of the light, George Fox. Old leather breeches and shaggy, shaggy locks, old leather breeches and shaggy, shaggy locks, with your old leather breeches and your shaggy, shaggy locks, you are walking in the glory of the light, George Fox. ocean of darkness and I drown in the night till I come through the darkness to the ocean of light. The light there is shining and the light there is free and the light there is shining for you and me. Walk in the light wherever you may be. Walk in the light wherever you may be with your old leather breeches and your shaggy, shaggy locks. You are walking in the glory of the light, George Fox. Old leather breeches and shaggy, shaggy locks. Old leather breeches and shaggy, shaggy locks with your old leather breeches and your shaggy, shaggy locks. You are walking in the glory of the light. Another good one. How many songs do you think you know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've forgotten lots of them. But the music is such a wonderful thing. I, I'll get these songs that I haven't thought about in 20 or 30 years, and once the melody pops into my brain, often I can remember three, four, five verses sometimes. Um, it's just, it's, it's locked in this spot Sometimes you can't pull it up voluntarily, but in the middle of the night when you wake up, there it is. <laughs> and um, well, I, I guess I would ask you when you first started playing music, how how close are you to where where you imagined you would be when you started? <laughs> well, you know, as a as a teenager and young adult, uh, of course, I thought that I was, um, you know destined for musical greatness um, and now I know that I'm destined for being a great music appreciator um, but a relatively mediocre musician. <laughs> you've got to, to really make a career in music, you've got to be possessed to do it. No, you really do because musicians, the lifestyle that musicians have 
to lead, um, even if you're at the pinnacle of your profession. If you're Yo-Yo Ma, you still have to live out of a suitcase and you spend more time in departure lounges of airports than you do with your family. And it makes it extremely difficult for musicians to lead um, relatively normal life, which is, I think, part of the reason why so many musicians end up being alcoholics or drug addicts, um, because their lifestyle is just so dysfunctional. Um, so unless you really are possessed by it, unless making that music is the thing that you just have got to do, um, after a while you're going to run out of juice. And I know I discovered in that van coming back from that lousy gig in Vermont that uh, I'd run out of juice. Mm-hmm. So. And, you know, I, um, I've found my life as a, um uh, itinerant player rather than as a, uh, someone who's making my life as, at it to be extremely enjoyable. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you feel you are possessed by, if anything? Well, I, I think the main drivers of my life have been music uh, and social justice. And in various ways, the ways I've tried to conduct my professional life have tried to bring those things together. Well, and unfortunately, we're, we're getting towards the end of our, our evening, so maybe you could find a song that's special to you or something that you could play for us to, to close us out. Okay. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what shall I play? I'd like everybody to give Bo a big hand. It was really a lot of fun. Well, I got the heebies, I mean the jeebies, talking about the jumping heebie-jeebie dance. Because I'm bored, because they fill me up with joy. Now say, don't you do it, you don't know how, don't be blue. Someone will teach you, come on down and do that dance They call the heebie-jeebies dance, I mean Papa's got the heebie-jeebies dance Oh, mm-ah, now come on down and do that dance I call the heebie-jeebies dance I mean Papa's got the heebie-jeebies dance Where I went to a dance with my sister Kate Everybody there said she's dancing great Now I realize a thing or two Kate was into something new I looked at Kate and she was in a trance I realized it was in her dance So everybody's been going wild About my sister dancing style Oh, I wish I could shimmy me like a sister Kate She moves just like a bowl of jelly on a plate Mama wanted to know last night She said, why do all the boys treat Kate so nice now? Mama, mama, it's understood Kate can shimmy and she shimmies real good now I may be late, but I'll be up to date When I can shimmy like my sister Kate I mean, shimmy like my sister Kate
Thank you. You've all been so sweet. Thanks, Bob. That was a lot of fun.